RTHK. For the last three to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Thursday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks fall for the second straight day. The euro slumps to an 11-year low against the U.S. dollar ahead of a key ECB meeting. The Reserve Bank of India surprises the market with a 25 basis point rate cut, sending the Sensex to a new record high. And the National People's Congress starts its annual meeting today in Beijing. It's a tale of two markets today. China's composite PMI rises to a five-month high, but Japan's services PMI falls to the lowest level since last April. We'll discuss the performance of Asia's two largest economies and the impacts on markets with Purusaksena of Purusaksena Wealth Management. Then we'll talk with author Henry Hutchison about the dirty little secrets of family business. And our final guest this morning is Chandran Nair, CEO of the Global Institute for Tomorrow. He'll talk to us about a new exhibition highlighting the world's everyday entrepreneurs. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting is our regular Thursday co-host this morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So the National People's Congress uh, starts its meeting today in Beijing. What are your expectations? Well, this Congress is really a rubber stamping committee for things that have been decided already. Um, The the main thing that we're expecting to be announced is the the target growth rates for 2015, which people are expecting to be around 7%. But in reality, the real growth rate we know is below that. It's probably below 6%, regardless of what is that official target at the moment. With varying opinions on whether that's 6% or 4% or, you know, something else. All right, hold that thought. It's definitely uh, something we'll be looking to discuss uh, just in moments from now. But first, uh, uh, let's look at what's happening in the West. U.S. markets are all in the red today as uh, the Fed Beige Book released yesterday found only modest wage pressure in the economy. The Fed, of course, meets later this month to decide on whether to raise interest rates. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 106 points to 18,096. The S&P 500 dropped 9 points to 2,098. And the Nasdaq declined 12 points to close at 4,967. The Eurozone currency has hit its lowest level against the U.S. dollar since September 2003. And this is in anticipation of ECB President Mario Draghi detailing his 60 billion euro a month monetary stimulus program. Mr. Draghi is set to outline how the ECB will carry out its program of quantitative easing in an attempt to stave off prolonged deflation in the 19-nation common currency area. Mohammed El Aryan of Allianz talks about the effects of QE. So I wasn't expecting that you're going to have over 20 rate cuts, but then I wasn't expecting the size of the QE that we got from the ECB. I think if you want to understand the driver of all that, there's two things. One is that the ECB is willing to do a very large QE, driving nominal yields further into negative territory. 
that's really significant. And the second issue is that the U.S. is willing to tolerate an appreciation. If you are a small country in this world and you look at that, you will end up also trying to push your currency lower, and that's exactly what we're seeing. If we had sat here eight weeks ago, and I would have told you three central banks that have made their reputation on being predictable and being stable, talking about Switzerland, Singapore, and Denmark, will surprise you, will surprise you, shock you yeah. in terms of doing something completely unpredictable. I would have said that probability is pretty low, but they've done so. And what it tells you is it's not just the emerging markets that are having issues dealing with this world where the G3 central banks are distorting a lot of the allocation of capital. It is also some of the smaller in advanced economies. In a surprise move, the Reserve Bank of India cut a key interest rate, the repo rate, by a quarter of a percent to 7.5%. The central bank cited subdued inflation and the need to stimulate growth as its main reasons. The consumer price index has fallen to an annual pace of 5%. At the open, the Bombay uh, Sensex index rose 1.5% to 30,010, the first time it's ever crossed the 30,000 mark before falling back later in the day. And the benchmark index is now up 7% for the year. David Mann is the head of Asia Research at Standard Chartered Bank, and he says the second rate cut was inevitable? Well, I think this is something that was relatively inevitable. I think the timing is slightly ahead of expectations. We think there's plenty more rate cuts to come in India. And the main reason for that, actually, is that we've got a nice reversal of the prior trend, which used to be higher inflation and lower growth. Now we've got the exact opposite, and it's a nice environment to be for a central bank that's able to get a bit more comfortable with reducing some of the monetary conditions that have been quite tight of late. China's slowing economy will be at the forefront of the annual meeting of the National People's Congress, which opens today in Beijing. The parliament is expected to cut this year's GDP growth target to around 7%, which would be the lowest growth in a quarter of a century. The University of Sydney's Kerry Brown is the former UK First Secretary to Beijing, and he discusses what to expect from this year's National People's Congress session. Well, usually National People's Congresses, they're meant to be the highest form of state power. Uh, according to the Constitution, they're a parliament, but in the past they've been called a sort of rubber stamp entity. They're basically meant to pass budgets which have already been set anyway. So, in a sense, this, I think, is a bit of uh, theatre. The thing that we can usually read from it, I think, this time, is just how well Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang are singing from the same sheet, basically. They're the key people, and there have been rumours that they're having not so much of a harmonious relationship. So that, to me, is the thing that you can see at this kind of event. They've set out the policy parameters of you know, more marketization, of deepening reform. As your report just said, I think the problem is that the anti-corruption campaign has been more laborious, more politically costly. It's really taken a toll and you've got a kind of sense of, I think, fear in the system which is an impediment to more uh, kind of innovative reform. And it's really, I suppose, politically reassuring. They've got to reassure people now that okay, corruption is one thing, but people have got to have the space to make decisions and at a provincial and national level be able to push forward for reform innovatively. All right, so let's bring in our first guest of the morning, Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. Good morning, Puru. Good morning, Renita. So let's talk about China. You know, officials at the NPC are expected to argue that a lower growth target provides the opportunity to overhaul state firms, laws, and the fiscal system. What are you expecting? What type of uh, reforms do you think that they'll focus on? 
Well, I think they're going to try and uh, drive the economy more towards domestic consumption and away from infrastructure and capital spending. Um, the slowdown in the Chinese economy is inevitable. It has to happen because if you look at the export side of uh, China, the demand remains quite sluggish in the developed world, Europe, uh, Japan, even America is uh, growing not at a horrific play, uh, pace. So the export demand for products from China is slow and the Chinese government recognizes that. So they're just saying that they are aiming for low growth. The reality is that the low growth will happen regardless. But Puru, with fears of deflation rising, there's also this need to sort of step in and support the economy. I mean, annual consumer price inflation hit a five-year low of 0.8% in January. And the PBOC has already cut interest rates twice now in the last three months. How serious do you think the deflation threat is in China? Well, I don't think there is going to be deflation in China. I, I just don't buy that because if you look at the pace at which we've seen um, increases in real estate, food prices and so forth, uh, we have an inflation problem in China, not really a deflation problem. You may have deflation in, in Europe where you've just come out of a massive uh, debt crisis. That's another story. But I don't believe that we're going to see deflation in China anytime soon. But the, the, the economy is certainly slowing, isn't it? We've seen the PMI numbers out, although they, were, they showed a slight increase there's there's not really robust growth uh, sort of going on in, in China at the moment. So what what, what can um, the authorities do? Can they, re- even if they announce a growth target, a lower growth target, in a large, sophisticated economy like China, is it really possible anymore for the economy to be run from the centre and for them to be able to pull the strings and manage the economy in the way they want? Well, Peter, if they keep building buildings and uh, motorways to nowhere, of course, you know, you can create GDP growth just by hiring a few construction workers and it's not real, real growth, is it? That's, and, and that, in the end, it leads to the big sort of booms and busts that we've seen in the past. So that, that's not really sustainable anymore. Well, it isn't. And I think, you know, if you look at the real estate valuations in China, China's property is extremely overvalued. If you measure it in terms of income or any other in terms of even the GDP data, it's just incredibly grossly overvalued. And I think the Chinese government now recognizes that they cannot continue to have a high GDP print simply by construction. Uh, they have to look for domestic demand. Uh, ultimately, any economy has to depend on their own consumers. That's where business activity comes from. And uh, unfortunately, all the credit creation so far has gone into bad projects in, in real estate. It hasn't really gone into domestic consumption. So in converting the economy to one that's driven by domestic consumption rather than investment, do you think China, the authorities, are prepared to tolerate lower rates of growth in, in in that process or, or, or do you think they're going to panic at some point and t- try and turn on the monetary spigots again? Well, they are now. If you see, you know, they've dropped interest rates, they've cut their bank's minimum reserve ratio requirements and they're easing again. They are panicking. I mean, if they weren't panicking, they would just let this whole thing play out and accept uh, and accept a recession, but they don't want to do that. So they're basically doing whatever they can to revive credit growth. All right, Puru, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this morning. That is Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. My pleasure. A quick look at the numbers for this morning. The Nikkei is down 19 points to 18,683. Australia's ASX 100 index is down 19 points also to 5,851. And Seoul's Kospi is down just less than one point to 1,997. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.107 US dollars. The US dollar is currently trading at 119 yen. And one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 83 cents.
time is now 8.15 a.m. And yesterday we had the owners of Paul Lafayette, a family business, contribute to the show. And today we'll continue the discussion on this unique method of working with Henry Hutchison, author of the book Dirty Little Secrets of Family Business. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Renata. How are you? Um, I'm great, thanks. And thank you for joining us from the U.S., from uh, North Carolina, uh, so uh, where it is still your Wednesday evening. So um, It is. It is. Dad. So, Henry, uh, you know, just like the golden rule for the actor is never to work with children or animals. You have, we, have to, we have to take it to an extreme. The first rule of business is not to set up in business with your own family, but you contend uh, otherwise. You say that dirty little secret number one is that family business is a wonderful thing. Why do you say that? Um, it, it is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, there's a multiplicity of reasons, but, you know, the main reason is that you can control your destiny. Um, the world, we have a world economy and everybody's trying to make their way. And owners of a family business, they have got a goose that is laying golden eggs. And if you've got a goose, you should tend to that goose and you should take care of it. But the second piece is that those family businesses that do well outperform non-family businesses on a number of financial metrics, primarily driven by the trust that exists among family members. They know each other real well. And so it's a big advantage. It's a big advantage. So, you know, this is a great point that you bring up, Henry, about trust. Um, you know, because really trust is the foundation for success, perhaps from, you know, for any business. Now, you quote in your book, you say, but what happens when trust breaks down? You say that uh, or when one of the family members is not willing or able to perform at the requisite level, there can be a sense of entitlement, there can be drug abuse, there can be simple laziness. And this forces the other family members to either pretend to ignore the problem or ask the profoundly awkward question, how do I fire my son or my daughter or my brother? So how do you, how do you sort of look at this, Henry? Because the former is obviously bad for the business and the latter is bad for the family. Right. Well, you know, family is about unconditional love and support. Um, you can't quit your family. Your mother's going to be your mother and your brother's going to be your brother, and, and that's just the way it is. Uh, but business is about making a profit. Um, it's about making money, and those two things don't necessarily combine. Um, and the issues that family businesses face that you just kind of highlighted, what needs to be done is family businesses and, you know, the leaders of family businesses need to kind of um, communicate, have a meeting, make sure everybody understands that, hey, we're in a family business, we all love each other, but we need to make sure the business runs well and so we need to make sure that we're communicating with each other frequently on a regular basis and honestly um, about, you know, how do we run this business well? And by the way, you know, you're my kids and I love you, but it doesn't mean that you're necessarily the right person to run the business or the most qualified or the most interested. And so I hope you are. I'd like you to be. And I'm going to work in that direction. But we have to be we have to make sure we're taking care of the business at the same time. So, Henry, when you talk about, um, you know, how to select the next family business leader, uh, you know, there are a range of options that you give in your book. You say one thing you can do is divide the company into parts. Let each sibling run that portion. Not a good idea. Rotate the leadership role among siblings. Also not a good 
good idea. Share the leadership role, also not a good idea. And buy another business to allow one of the siblings to run that, mm, not ideal. Or finally, bring in or select a non-family member to lead the company. What is the right way to do this? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a multiplicity of ways that you can look at it. But it's true. Most of, most of the job-sharing responsibilities of, of trying to run the family business don't work. Um, my family's business, my two uncles in the second generation, they split the ownership 50-50. And that worked out terribly because each one holds veto power over the other. We have found through working with um, many family businesses that at the end, you really do need to have one leader um, who's in charge. And then you, you, know, you define some metrics and performance metrics on how they should perform, um, goals they need to achieve. And this is whether it's a family member or a non-family member. Um, a lot of family businesses, family business owners, are determined to have a family business member run the business but there are many family businesses that do very well bringing in somebody from the outside to run the business. It can groom the next generation, and it also removes kind of that sensitive, emotional family element in trying to prepare your kids to take over ultimately one day. So almost like generation skipping. You know, you bring someone yeah. in for the outside for the one generation. Interesting. Peter? So in, in terms of culture, I mean, a lot of people will argue that, that family culture here in Asia is stronger than in the West. So would, does that automatically lead to a better family business culture as well in terms of being able to set up and maintain family businesses? You know, I, I, I think it does, personally. Um, I've had a couple of clients that were Chinese. Um, the one, the really big and interesting one was that you know, it was always expected that the daughter was going to come into the business and run the business and take over and run it. And the fact of the matter was is that while she was quite qualified and while she could have done the business, it was simply not her passion. It was simply not what she wanted to do. And in Chinese culture, it's a strong expectation that, you know, if you're my child, you will be taking over this business one day. And I think the advantage, however, is that because it's cultural, um, the next generation is kind of aware that this is the path that I'm going to need to take, and this is, the, this is our family's goose that lays the golden egg, and I've got to prepare myself to be a good leader of this business. However, I want to make a quick distinction. You can run a business by being a good owner, and it doesn't mean you have to be in the business running the business. So there's lots of businesses that have non-family members that are leading the business, but ultimately you're the owner and so you've got the final say. All right, Henry, one more question. You know, our guest on yesterday's show pointed out that uh, family business culture is stronger here in Asia than in the West. And I've been wondering about that. Of course, we have a very strong culture of family businesses in Hong Kong, in China, India, frankly, all over Asia. Are there different rules uh, that exist here in Asia than there are in the West? For family business? Uh, rules in the sense of why there's a stronger family business culture or so many of them? Um, why there's a stronger family business culture that leads to success and generally, uh, generational succession of that particular business? Again, well, the reason I, th- I think that the, the norm is to have family businesses. I mean, the, the history of business going back thousands of years They were all family businesses. When you don't have a family business, what you have is 
strong capital markets. And I would contend that the U.S. is probably, you know, one of the strongest capital markets out there. So when the company gets to a certain size, um, it will go public, and now you've brought in other owners, and so you kind of um, eroded or diluted the, the family business control that goes on. Now, obviously, Hong Kong has a very strong capital market, um, but I think that I think the culture in, in, in Asia is very strong towards family businesses, and I think that culture um, kind of self-perpetuates itself. When you're born in a, fa- in a family business in China or in India or in Malaysia or in Indonesia, it's expected and you are groomed to, to take over that family's business. All right, Henry. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Henry Hutchison. He is a family business consultant and author of a book called Dirty Little Secrets of Family Business. The time is now 8.24 a.m. And speaking of uh, family businesses and entrepreneurs, our final guest this morning is Mr. Chandran Nair. Chandran is the founder and CEO of the Global Institute for Tomorrow, an independent pan-Asian think tank based in Hong Kong. Good morning, Chandran. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, Chandran. So um, you are here uh, to talk about this new exhibition uh, called The Other 100 that uh, launches uh, tonight, this evening. Is that right, in Pacific Place? That's right. The exhibition is to initially launch the second edition of our series called The Other 100. Uh, You might be aware that last year we essentially published the first edition, which is simply called The Other 100, which is an attempt to juxtapose the the realities of the world with the the idea that there are the richest 100. And the the name The Other 100 is coined from the fact that if you have something called The Richest 100, then the intelligent question to ask is, who are the other hundred? How do you find them? So that's where the series started. Today we launched a second book at PP2 uh, called The Other Hundred Entrepreneurs. Again, um, the idea being that much of the mainstream media narrative of entrepreneurship is about how to become a billionaire overnight, how to start a dot-com, how to run some kind of Ponzi scheme. And to su- But here is to suggest that 99% of entrepreneurs in the world never met a business, uh, never went to business school, didn't do an IPO and don't run franchises. And that's the real world. And yet these are obviously successful people, successful families, successful entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And we have in the book a uh, 100 stories from 95 countries and essentially reinforcing the idea that um, the vast majority of uh, employment in the world is essentially not created by large multinational companies in Asia. Two-thirds of employment jobs are created by SMEs, etc. And these are all entrepreneurs who unfortunately never make it to the front pages of the Fortune magazine or the Financial Times. Dare I say, don't get invited to RTHK. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta uh, you gotta think about what you say. No, no, uh, Chandran. It's so free society here in Hong Kong. I remind it is. You. Yeah. It is indeed, Chandran. Can we then, in that case, debunk this whole you know 
education rat race, uh, race for professionalism and uh, more than that for labels, ideology. I must get the MBA. I must go to Harvard. I must, you know, go to the next Ivy League or whatever it is. Um, can we debunk all of that as a complete myth if there are successful entrepreneurs all over the world, you know, who have, don't have a business degree? Um, I wouldn't say debunk. I think we just need to be aware that uh, the people – and I have no problems with people doing MBAs, etc. But the glorification of uh, this form of route to success, I think, distorts the reality of the world we live in. I mean, I teach at an MBA program in Hong Kong, etc. Good luck. But, you know, we glorify this. All I'm trying – what we're trying to do with this is to essentially reinforce the, the idea, which is based on facts, that the majority of entrepreneurs never met an investment banker, don't dream of an IPO, and never did an MBA. And that's, all, that's okay too. And MBAs, by the way, don't prepare you to be an entrepreneur. That's a myth which we need to debunk. So, Chandra, some, some of these entrepreneurs are in yeah. third world countries. Or, you and know, the uh, developing world too. The, the book covers all spectrums of societies as yeah. well, not to just suggest it's from the third world. So yeah. how, do you, how do you discover these people? How do you find them? No, thank you very much for that question. So the, the, uh, we're a small team. So what we've done with the first book and the second is to reach out through a growing network of journalists, photojournalists, etc., around the world who then send us submissions. We receive more than 10,000 uh, submissions, etc., of different entrepreneurs. Um, the hard work we had to do in Hong Kong was to reach out to countries which typically might not have access to the type of ne- social networks, etc. But over the last three years, we've developed a huge network, and then they've submitted it and that it grows and grows and grows. So how do you get to Iran, for instance, through connect connections we have there? How do you get to Turkey through networks, etc.? That's how we've done it and we hope we will grow this over time. Chandran, I want to mm-hmm. ask you about something you just said. You said MBA programs do not teach you to be entrepreneurs. So then what is your answer to uh, all of these MBA programs out there in Stanford and Babson and all these business schools who have these so-called amazing entrepreneurship programs? Oh, I mean, it's become very fashionable to suggest that you'll have an MBA in entrepreneurship uh, uh, spirit, etc. Entrepreneurship doesn't come from learning functional skills, which is essentially what MBAs uh, teach you. So in an MBA is good, but essentially it trains you to be technocrats, and entrepreneurship is a very different thing. And what we've tried to do here is show you that the true spirit of entrepreneurship lies somewhere away from what the business school's narratives are. And in fact, the, the idea to have the second book based on entrepreneurship was based based on a meeting I attended at Davos about two years ago on entrepreneurship. And within five minutes, the the entire conversation had essentially been downgraded to a conversation about Silicon Valley types and uh, how to get equity debt ratios working. That's where it comes from. I know my time's up. Okay, time unfortunately is up. <laughs> Tell you. us really quick uh, about the launch tonight and where we can get the book. And- yeah, please. Uh, the launch tonight is at Pacific Place too. Thank you to Swire uh, for allowing us there. It's in, it's in the, the main exhibition. Exhibition Hall on the uh, uh, foyer in, in Pacific Place. Too. It starts at 7 p.m. Everyone's welcome. You can get the book directly from us or all the other sources. But if you buy it from us, it allows us this, this non-profit initiative to publish the next book, which is going to be hopefully called The Other Hundred, uh, the other hundred uh, Educators as well. We need to sell right. 20,000 books. Please buy as many as you can from us, particularly the large corporations listening up to this. Thank okay. You. Thank you, Chandran. That is Chandran Nair, CEO of the Global Institute for Tomorrow.
The Nikkei is uh, down just less than a one point to 18,702. Uh, Australia's ASX 100 index is down uh, 15 points to 5,855. And Seoul's Kospi down half a point to 1,997. Peter, real quick, parting thoughts for the week. Yep, two things to watch. Obviously, the MPC meeting, see what growth rate they announce. And then tomorrow, we have very important economic data out of the US. We've got the jobs numbers. That will be a crucial piece of information which will help the Fed decide when they're going to raise interest rates. So lots to look out for today. Thank you, Peter of Peter Lewis Consulting, who is our regular Thursday guest host on Money for Nothing. And I am Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for the show. Weather forecast today will be cloudy to overcast with a few rain patches and uh, mist. The temperature right now, 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity, 96%. Time for the news with Sam Butler. The government has been criticised over a further delay in the vitally needed extension of East Rail across the harbour. It says more time is needed to decide on and possibly build new convention facilities above the Exhibition Station in Wan Chai North. But Albert Lai, the policy convener of the Professional Commons, told RTHK this reason was at best dubious. As I say, it's totally unnecessary. In the end, in fact, um, if the government is really serious in consulting the public, uh, uh, you know, I think most people will object to that type of uh, concentration of uh, facilities, uh, uh, you know, in the most congested area in the Hong Kong Island. Um, so that six months of delay is, you know, will totally be wasted. The U.S. ambassador to South Korea has been attacked by a man armed with a 